Finally, finally, some winning, some winning, a victory. And I love it. I love it. I don't like the vaccine mandates. I've been very clear about that. This is an opinion show. I'm allowed to say that we've been frustrated for a long time and we have finally won something. It's not total victory. It's a temporary victory, but it looks like it's going to stick. The Fifth Circuit overturned Joe Biden's ridiculous vaccine mandate under OSHA. It was stayed. There was a temporary hold on it. This is going to be great. Now, remember back in September when Joe came out and said this. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, issued a rule to require employers with 100 or more employees to ensure that each of their workers is fully vaccinated or tests negative for COVID-19 at least once a week. Okay, they did that because Joe Biden and his chief of staff and the whole Biden administration found an end around, all right, uh, a workaround, if you will. They didn't want to go through the trouble of passing a law, so they went through the bureaucracy. The judges totally called them out on that. And also they observed that this is nonsense. This is good for the workers, for their colleagues, for their loved ones, and for their communities. And it's also good for the economy. None of that's true. None of that's true. And the judges from the Fifth Circuit uh, underscored that and illustrated it in beautiful fashion. You know, the federal government, let's face it, they've let us down a lot. But these three judges from the appellate court down in Louisiana, this is awesome and this is important. It's one step below the Supreme Court. Let's go through their ruling, okay? Uh, OSHA's regulatory scheme exposes them, the people, to severe financial risk if they refuse or fail to comply and threatens to decimate their workforces and business prospects by forcing unwilling employees to take their shots, take their tests, or hit the road. It's one of the reasons I love this opinion so much. It's written in large part in pretty direct language. A lot of these opinions are, you know, the fake news and a lot of lawyers, they want you to think that this is a special language that only they can understand. It's not true. The opinion goes on or the ruling, the stay, I should say. This is the rare government pronouncement that is both over-inclusive and under-inclusive, purporting to save employees with 99 or more coworkers from a grave danger in the workplace, while making no attempt to shield employees with 98 or fewer coworkers from this very same threat. Isn't that interesting? Again, <laughs> it does make perfect sense. If you work at a firm with 97 people, you don't have to get tested, you don't have to wear a mask, you don't need the... But that secret number is 99 and everything changes. It doesn't change. And they call that out. What's next in this uh, opinion? Rather than a delicately handled scalpel, the mandate, mandate is a one-size-fits-all sledgehammer that makes hardly any attempt to account for differences in workplaces and workers that have more than a little bearing on workers' varying degrees of susceptibility to the supposedly grave Danger. Yeah, everyone's different. And OSHA, by the way, when they do this, and there is precedent for uh, a mandate, sort of, they actually say in their own regulations it's supposed to be very delicate, not this draconian, everybody must comply with us or else. It's not designed that way. Next. Uh, according to the regulations, health in general, this is back in 1989, <laughs> their own regulations, is an intensely personal matter. OSHA prefers to encourage, rather than try to force by governmental coercion, employee cooperation in a vaccination program. 
The judges cited their own documents, their own regulations. <sighs> their case falls on its own sword, right? Something like that. Next, please. The mandate is staggeringly overbroad. The mandate fails to consider what is perhaps the most salient fact of all. The ongoing threat of COVID-19 is more dangerous to some employees than to other employees. Again, it totally makes sense. And then they start picking out certain jobs where maybe you want it and another job where maybe you don't. Maybe you don't even need it. Next, please. Yeah, here we go. All else equal, a 28-year-old trucker spending the bulk of his workday in the solitude of his cab is simply less vulnerable to COVID-19 than a 62-year-old prison janitor. I love these judges. Again, what a perfect example, and it makes total sense. More. Given that we learn more about the COVID-19 every day, setting rules in stone through a mandate may undermine worker protection by permanently mandating precautions that later prove to be ineffective. I've always had trouble. Ineffective, I'm going to say. Makes sense, right? This thing is changing every, every day. More. The mandate is also under-inclusive. The most vulnerable worker in America draws no protection from the mandate if his company employs 99 workers or fewer. Uh, building on what they said earlier, that makes total sense. And hence, the mandate, the way it's uh, designed, makes no sense. We're wrapping up here. It is clear that a denial of the petitioner's proposed stay would do them irreparable harm. For one, the mandate threatens to substantially burden the liberty interests of reluctant individual recipients put to a choice between their job and their jabs. Liberty. Liberty. Oh, when's the last time you heard anybody promote liberty? This is beautiful. Next. There is no clear expression of congress congressional intent to convey OSHA such broad authority, and this court will not infer one, nor can the Article II executive breathe new power into OSHA's authority, no matter how thin patience wears. Okay, a couple of things on this. The Article II executive, take a look at that portion. That is Joe Biden, all right? That's what, who they're getting at. And at the end there, no matter how thin patience wears, this is proof that they're talking about Joe Biden, because I remember what he said last September about this mandate. Do you? Over 200 million Americans have gotten at least one shot. We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin. And your refusal has cost all of us. I mean, he thinks he's some sort of king, some sort of emperor. It doesn't work that way. And I knew it at the time. I really found myself fuming when he talked like this. Someone took to Twitter that day and said, shut up, Joe. I just checked with my lawyers. The government doesn't have the authority to force the vaccine on anyone. See you in court, tough guy. P.S. Don't think this makes us forget about Afghanistan either. Don't you like that? Who is this guy? Who came up with that on September 9th, right after the president said that nonsense? Yes, it was me. <laughs> I just, it just, it felt so un-American. And I knew, I knew he was on thin ice. Constitutionally, no way. The Constitution was written for us, and it is totally understandable. By the way, downloading these opinions and reading them for ourselves... It's totally doable. They don't want us doing that, but it's totally doable. Here's my favorite line from the opinion. Uh, put it up, please. 
It says it is further ordered that OSHA take no steps to implement or enforce the mandate until further court order. The judges made clear they think that uh, OSHA and the government will fail and that those against this will succeed. We will see what happens, but I'm feeling very confident and actually very, very optimistic as well. Um, the fake news, by the way, they hate this and they ignored it. They tried on the Sunday shows to talk about everything else but this, giving Joe Biden credit for infrastructure and really saying are horrible things about anybody who opposed that uh, particular bill. An ugly backlash. Traitor. That's what you are. You're a piece of traitor. Conservative voters sending profanity-laced messages to Republicans simply for voting for President Biden's infrastructure bill. Voting for so why the anger over the kind of bill, infrastructure, roads and bridges that normally produces bipartisan support? Ooh, profanity on a voicemail. Oh, only Republicans do that. It happens all the time, every day. It's not nice, but the far left does it. The right, it's a fact. Joe Biden said, actually, that's part of the process, man. That's just part of the process. Hey, there are a lot of reasons to be opposed to the infrastructure bill. Uh, there's all kinds of pork. Uh, Joe Biden is not, has never shown himself to be responsible with anybody's money. And there are legitimate reasons, not just uh, bridges and roads, Chuck Todd. You can pretend that it is, but it's not. It's not. There's a lot of junk in there. But Joe Biden got to sign it. And when he signed it, you might see Kamala Harris back there somewhere. And that's interesting because Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, by numerous reports, are not getting along. It's all over the place. Major friction between the vice president and the president. Everybody's talking about it. Quite frankly, <laughs> no surprise. No surprise whatsoever. Um, first, Kamala Harris. I mean, she's probably she's probably tricky to have around any office. Just listen to her. Okay. <laughs> how do you? How do you... <laughs> I mean, the nervous laughter at inappropriate occasions is just that that that's always been odd. But the Biden people have looked at her when they've given her assignments and they realize, yikes, we have a problem here. Now, they were totally spooked in Biden world when she sat down with Lester Holt not too long after getting the border job and signaling to the world that she's not a serious person. Just quickly put a button. Okay. Do you have any plans to visit the border? I, at some point, you know, I, we are going to the border. We've been to the border. So you, this whole this whole this whole thing about the border, we've been to the border. We've been to the border. You haven't been to the border. I, and I haven't been to Europe. And I, mean, I don't I don't understand the point that you're making. How could she not understand the point? She got a big job. She's not doing it. Um, and look, there are ways to get out of a situation like that. You don't just laugh and try to charm the guy who's talking to you. She did. It didn't work. So there's a lot of buyer's remorse. I mean, they could have found another woman of color, actually. Would have been hard, but they could have done that. In the meantime, uh, we're hearing that Jill Biden really, really resents her for the way she treated Joe back in 2019, I think. So that's decision. where the federal government must step the, in. The that's why we have the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. That's why we need to pass the Equality Act. That's why we need to pass the ERA, because that's there right. are moments 
in history where states fail to preserve the civil rights of all people. I supported the okay, ERA from the very beginning seconds. when Vice I ran President Biden, 30 seconds. The last time somebody talked to me the way Kamala is talking to Joe happened in boot camp. And I still, quite frankly, <laughs> don't like that drill instructor. I have a feeling this is a really messy and ugly relationship, and I don't know how it's going to end. Next, 30 years ago, a horrible crime in the most famous park in the world generated international headlines. 30 years later, <laughs> the same type of crime Nobody seems to care what is happening to all of us. We'll be right back. Hi, Rob Carson here. If you love watching Newsmax, you're really going to love listening to our new podcast. It's called the Newsmax Daily. I host it, and I give you the best briefing of the big news of the day, top newsmaker interviews, and even, yes, a few laughs. I know it's hard to believe. So if you're uh, driving, walking, exercising, just about anywhere, you can connect with the Newsmax Daily with me, Rob Carson. Find our podcast online or go to iPhone, Spotify, iHeart, Stitcher, and more, and start listening today. All I can, I can say... say is that the, the fake, fake news just doesn't get it, do they? Fake news is ignoring a horrible, horrible crime that took place in New York City just a couple of days ago. A 27-year-old woman was attacked, strangled, and raped in the most famous park in the world, Central Park. It happened in the middle of the day. And... It's just not a big story. Now it should be. I'll get to that in a moment. There is a suspect in custody, uh, Pauli Valles, quite a character. He was uh, uh, arrested for a sex assault in Florida. He cut his ankle bracelet and came to New York, and allegedly he raped a woman. But it's just not a big deal. I don't know why. Uh, maybe people are reluctant to uh, call attention to these things because of ethnicity. I'm not sure what's happening, but Central Park has seen horrible things before, and they became international stories. Eight suspects were arraigned this weekend, aged 14 to 17. Some of the young men told police they were just out wilding. Wilding is a word you won't find in Webster's. Wilding. New York City police say that's new teenage slang for rampaging and wolf packs, attacking people just for the fun of it. The district attorney's office says that the teenagers have confessed. The spokesman said some of those confessions are on videotape. A woman jogging and Central Park. Central Park was holy. If it had happened any place else other than Central Park, it would have been terrible. But it would not have been as terrible. Well, it happened again. I mean, it's it's not as sensational. This was not a group attack, an individual attack. But again, the location and the time of day. Look at the difference. 1989 <laughs> on the Daily News front page and almost every newspaper in the world. 30 or so years later, look at this. Where is it? It's at the very, very bottom. Central Park rape suspect. There you go. There you go. Now... More to say about this, and it all ties back to Donald Trump. Ultimately, I'm always right. 
Back in 1989, Donald Trump was famous, uh, the famous Donald Trump. He had already built Trump Tower, and he was a major player. He'd already been mentioned as a possible presidential candidate and vice presidential candidate. Uh, and he was deeply affected, as so many New Yorkers were, by this horrible attack in 1989 on that woman. It was big, big news. It affected him so much that he took out a full-page ad in the New York Times, bring back the death penalty, bring back our police. Now, he talks about the assault, but it was actually nuanced, and it's a fairly long essay. Here's one portion. Uh, Unshackle them from the constant chance of police brutality, which every petty criminal hurls immediately at an officer. We must cease our continuous pandering to the criminal population of this city. Now, a lot of people agreed with him, and a lot of people agreed with him when he said this. Send a message loud and clear to those who would murder our citizens and terrorize New York. Bring back the death penalty. Bring back our police. All right. Now he's talking about murder, capital punishment for anyone who kills somebody. That's actually okay. That's, main, that's a mainstream opinion. But today, and since Donald Trump was involved, no, this was the worst thing anybody could ever say. Once you find out that DNA has exonerated them, you don't think you owe them an apology for asking for the death penalty, had they, which had they gotten it, they would not have lived long enough for DNA to exonerate them. Mm -hmm. If these kids were white, would he be calling for the death penalty? Come on. <laughs> Thank you. This repetitious publicity against non-whites. That's where he's at. He's a total racist. I know uh, Raymond Santana and Yusef Salam, mm -hmm. um, and their lives have been so severely impacted. Yeah. It's a problem that continues in the criminal justice yeah. system. All right. So uh, I know something about this case as well. And these guys, the fake news and Hollywood, say they're not guilty. That is not true. They haven't studied the case. They haven't looked at the settlement that was made, which was, by the way, ridiculous. They gave these guys millions and millions of dollars, but they were not exonerated, and DNA evidence did not prove their innocence. It is a total misconception, and it's something that Donald Trump understands better than any of these reporters and better than an awful lot of lawyers. Mr. President, will you apologize to Central Park Five? They've been exonerated. There have been videos, movies shown about the case, and you came out with a full-page ad saying that they should die, that they should have the death penalty. Do you Why do you bring that question up now? It's an interesting time to bring it up. Uh, you have people on both sides of that. They admitted their guilt. If you look at Linda Fairstein and if you look at some of the prosecutors, uh, they think that the city should never have settled that case. So we'll leave it at that. He was right. And there were a lot of people who worked for the city, lawyers who said there's no settlement needed here. And in fact, no wrongdoing was admitted to. Complicated case that the fake news has neither the patience nor the ability to understand. In the meantime, Central Park is again a very dangerous place. We'll be right back. Information. Truth is freedom. Is Newsmax. It's real news for real people. 
So the Kyle Rittenhouse trial wrapping up, uh, you know how I feel. It looked like an obvious case of, of self-defense. Interesting, though, this case has been so racialized. You know the victims are all white. Yeah, victims are the people, yeah, they're uh, all white. I mean, why am I hearing about race so much? And why don't I see more of these guys, one of whom has a horrible, horrible criminal record? Um, they don't talk about them, but they do talk about race. Kyle Rittenhouse, a guy who's deeply racist, went with weapons to a Black Lives Matter protest. It's not hard to think about how that case or any other racially inflection point would actually impact a juror's mind in this trial. He was able to walk with his AR-15 past the police officers, and they simply said nothing to him, should tell us that this is about race. He's now being celebrated as a hero and a victim right. in white America in some circles. My Look, um, white people go to jail every single day for killing white people. It happens. It happens. But this case, they want to talk about race. It's unfair, um, but that's what the media does, huh? Hey, the prosecutor, by uh, no one's impressed with this guy. Um, the case is weak to begin with, and he's even weaker. We've had several police officers testify that in an active shooter situation, their first instinct, their first training is to go in and stop the threat. They don't sit there and wonder, well, maybe it was self-defense. I don't know. I'm going to, you know, let, wait and see. And every day we read about heroes that stop active shooters. That's what was going on here. And that crowd was right. And that crowd was full of heroes. That crowd in Kenosha, Wisconsin, rioting, going crazy, full of heroes. What a crazy, bizarre trial. I wonder what he would have thought of Ferguson, Missouri in 2014. Full of heroes? Probably would have bought the fiction of uh, full of white supremacists. Wasn't the case. Uh, a lot of people who lived in that community just kind of ruining their community. Uh, the police, a lot of people saying bad things about the police. Corey Bush, the very interesting member of Congress, said this today. When we marched in Ferguson, white supremacists would hide behind a hill near where Michael Brown Jr. was murdered and shoot at us. They never face consequences. Back to Kyle Rittenhouse. If Kyle Rittenhouse gets acquitted, it tells them that even seven years later, they can still get away with it. This is really bizarre stuff. But hey, look, Cori Bush is a deranged homeless person. Uh, she was homeless. And now even though she makes, what, 200 something thousand dollars a year as a member of Congress, she wants to be homeless again. And it's a free country. You can tweet crazy stuff if you want to. All right. Now this. Who's the officer? Do you want your house back? Take it. Still bothers me. And it's the biggest lie. Here's the big lie. Calling January 6th this. The day before the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. What we're talking about is investigating a crime, which was the insurrection at the Capitol. So it was an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. And one insurrection later. That is the latest take from Mike Pence on the January 6th insurrection. Friday saw two major developments in the investigation of the January 6th Capitol insurrection. All right. So they are either lying or dumb. I think it's a combination of both. But I do watch these Sunday shows for some reason. Um, it is occasionally amusing. On CNN, they had this character uh, saying exactly what happened on January 6th. Closed issue. He knows everything. 
hats. I was there. There was no Antifa members climbing out of trees and changing their hats with MAGA hats and all this type of stuff. There was none of that, like right-wing media wants to push now. It was, you know, pro-Trump activists that decided to, to break the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's it. I guess we don't need a uh, commission. Why ask any questions? We shouldn't have a committee. Well, I thought that kind of intrigued me what he said. So I went back and looked at what Zachary had to say uh, back on January 6th. And he was there working for something called the Daily Dot Dot Com. You heard he just said Trump supporters were breaking the law. Here's a photo that he posted that day. This person's not breaking the law. Uh, there were people that he found who were peacefully protesting, plenty of those. Uh, these folks who happen to be walking away from the Capitol are not breaking the law. He saw the horns guy at one point. Uh, at that point, he's not breaking the law. Uh, <laughs> the police actually escorted some of these protesters to the Capitol. Uh, when Josh Hawley uh, showed up, uh, no one was breaking the law. But, but he did see something interesting uh, he characterized it as interesting. And, well, you tell me. Take a look. Why are you guys retreating? Why are you guys retreating? Now, uh, it's interesting. I don't think they're running away, but he did say he's there. They're retreating. So we looked up the article he wrote that day, and he did make an interesting observation that maybe he should focus on this. It was with a complicit police force allowing the rioters to move through Congress unabated. A complicit police force. Would they have done that on their own? Would complicity, would they have decided that? Or were they encouraged by Nancy Pelosi or somebody else? Let's look into that. Hmm? A complicit police force. That's interesting. When we come back, Kamala Harris, nobody likes her, not even Joe Biden. We'll be right back. Real heroes. Real conflict. Real threats. Real heart. Now, there's a place America gets its news. No agenda. Just the facts. Newsmax. Real news for real people. With us in government, we campaign with the plan. Uppercase T, uppercase P, the plan. And then the environment is such that we're expected to defend the plan. Even when the first time we roll it out, there may be some glitches and it's time to reevaluate and then do it again. Oh boy. Obviously she has a problem. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but people are noticing they don't like her. The polls, her favorability rating is under 30%. It basically can't get much lower than that. And uh, it looks like Joe Biden doesn't like her. Nobody in the White House likes her. All kinds of stories about uh, friction between the president's camp and the vice president's team. Uh, this is bad, bad stuff. But it doesn't surprise me. And I don't think it surprises our next guest, Peter Schweizer. He is the president of the Government Accountability Institute. And he wrote the book, I believe, so far on Kamala Harris and a number of other uh, crazy Democrats, Profiles in Corruption, the one on the left, uh, a fantastic book. And the chapter on Kamala Harris is really something. Uh, Peter, welcome back. How are you? I'm great. Always great to be with you, Greg. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you. Uh, are you surprised at all that she's crashing and burning like this? Uh, no. Um, look, the uh, the Biden uh, Harris ticket um, was a shotgun a wedding from the beginning. Um, the other thing that people are overlooking is, aside from the personality differences that they have, which are pretty extreme, I mean, Joe Biden is kind of an off-the-cuff guy. Um, he always has been. Um, she is extremely scripted. The other factor here that you have to remember is that Joe Biden is, of course, trying to establish himself as the leader of the Democratic Party. Uh, there's sort of a shadow lurking in the back, uh, and that would be Barack Obama. Uh, Kamala Harris is extremely close to both Barack Obama and Michelle Obama. She actually uh, first met them when she campaigned for his run for the U.S. Senate. Uh, in 2004. Um, so I also think you have this interesting dynamic where, uh, you know, Obama wants to remain the head of the party uh, and uh, Kamala Harris is uh, closer to Barack Obama, certainly, than she is to Joe Biden, uh, who she is supposed to be working with. And I seem to remember there might have been a little bit of chemistry between Barack Obama and Kamala Harris. Uh, he seemed to like her a lot. And it may have been reciprocated, right? Isn't that kind of, uh, I'm not the, that was a thing, right, for a little while? Well, they, they uh, certainly in a political sense, uh, they were very close. Um, and what I mean is there was that 2004 election where Barack Obama was a state senator running for the U.S. Senate. Uh, she flew out from California. She worked in a county prosecutor's office out in California, uh, went to campaign for him. Uh, and then when she ran for the um uh, attorney, uh, district attorney in San Francisco, Barack Obama, as a U.S. senator uh, from Illinois, flew out to California and helped to retire campaign debt. So there's no doubt that they are particularly close. There's also no doubt that, you know, look, she has never really faced a serious political opponent in California. So she's not used to the rough and tumble of a answering tough questions, of, yeah. um, you know, dealing with crises. It's just not something that she's ever faced. And the reports now are, Greg, that she's relying on her family for political advice. And of course, that raises questions because her husband, uh, who is a corporate lawyer, while she was California attorney general, there was all sorts of evidence that she was giving favorable treatment to his clients. So you have to wonder whether uh, her husband's involvement is going to sway her in, uh, let's say, decisions that are beneficial to his friends or former clients. This is what I was thinking of about the uh, the chemistry thing. Obama at a uh, fundraiser uh, several years ago said she's the best looking attorney general in the country. And yes. uh, he was the, like openly admiring her. And he actually had to apologize for his flirtation. This was in was in 2013. Hey, I heard this, that the Obama, look, the Bidens wanted to give her a chance. I mean, they weren't out to sabotage her. But when she had that interview with Lester Holt, they realized there's something wrong with this person. She can't handle basic questions that she should be ready for. Take a look. Do you have any plans to visit the border? I, I'm here in Guatemala today I, at some point. You know, I, we are going to the border. We've been to the border. So you, this whole this whole this whole thing about the border, we've been to the border. We've been to the border. You haven't been to the border. I, and I haven't been to Europe. And I, I, mean, I don't I don't understand the point. <laughs> yeah, here's the thing they saw that and they like, oh, what, what's wrong with her? Number one. And I'm looking at her right there. I feel like she she thinks she can charm any man, you know, laugh, smile, giggle. 
Let's face it, she famously charmed Willie Brown in California, the most powerful guy in the state, basically. He was the Speaker of the Assembly, later mayor of San Francisco. He got, he was a very big deal in California, and they were a couple for a number of years. And tell us more, she got a lot of jobs because of him, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, Willie Brown was married. Um, she was, uh, I think, 28 or 29. He was in his mid-60s. Uh, and they became romantically involved. Uh, Willie Brown, as Speaker of the Assembly, um, had the responsibility of populating all these state commissions. There's a state commission on unemployment insurance. There's a state commission on health care policy. Um, by the way, Kamala Harris has no background in either, uh, but Willie Brown put her on both of those. And the responsibility of those commissions um, basically entails going to one meeting a month in nearby Sacramento, uh, and between those two jobs, she was pulling in close to $400,000. Um, he also was instrumental to her political rise. Even after yeah. their, uh, let's say, romance dissolved, uh, he remained a powerful political patron for her uh, when she sought higher office in California. So she's always had kind of a sponsor. Again, she's never really had a strong political uh, 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 opponent uh, in a state like California. And look, people are looking, whether it's president or vice president, whether they're a man or a woman, they're looking for gravitas. Um, they're looking for a Margaret Thatcher type uh, a personality. Um, and they're not getting that from Kamala Harris. When she, get ner when she gets nervous, she giggles. Um, uh, she does not do well with probing questions. She doesn't think well on her feet in that respect. Yeah. Um, and I think their strategy now is to sort of keep her at a distance and, and keep her uh, away from the television sets. Peter, uh, I got to ask you about Hunter Biden. You're also an expert on that. The Biden financial shenanigans. You may remember this a couple of months ago when when we found out Hunter's going to actually be selling his art. The White House said they'll have this arrangement and it'll keep everything uh, everything kosher. After careful consideration, a system has been established that allows for Hunter Biden to work in his profession within reasonable safeguards. Uh, of course, he has the right to pursue an artistic career, just like any child of a president has the right to pursue a career. Uh, but all interactions regarding the selling of art and the setting of prices uh, will be handled by a professional gallerist adhering to the highest industry standards. And any offer out of the normal course would be rejected out of hand. And the gallerist will not share information about buyers or prospective buyers, including their identities with Hunter Biden or the administration, which provides quite a level of protection and transparency. All right. <laughs> it's, it's laughable. First of all, they're not doing any of that. And Hunter right. is no kidding selling art. Here he is just the other night in New York City at a prestigious art gallery about to go in. But here's something even more interesting. Valerie Biden, his aunt, Joe's sister, was at the same event. And could you tell me, please, about Valerie Biden? Give us a sense of how much money she's made over the years and what she did to get that money. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, look, this is the uh, the way the Biden family operates. It's all about self-enrichment, Greg. Um, think about this. Joe Biden has represented Delaware for decades. Uh, when he was up for re-election every six years, there was never really a serious challenge. So what did Joe Biden do? He hired his sister as the campaign manager uh, and paid her, you know, two or three million dollars uh, per election cycle for an easy reelection. Um, this is basically a practice that's frowned upon uh, hiring family members for these kinds of political campaigns. Some politicians do it and Joe Biden has done it. Uh, and that's why I refer to them as the Biden five. You know, all five 
members of the Biden family, uh, whether that's Hunter, whether that is um, his uh, Joe Biden's son-in-law, whether that's Valerie, whether that's his brothers, James and Frank, yeah. all of them, all of them have some kind of corrupt gig based on Joe's political power. It is totally wild. It is totally wild. And they're getting away with it for now. For now, Peter Schweizer, president of the Government Accountability Institute and all these great books. Again, my favorite so far has been Profiles in Corruption, uh, came out last year, available wherever books are sold. And you got a, a whole host of other titles as well. Peter, thank you. Thanks, Greg. OK, we'll be right back. That vaccine mandate, I knew it was illegal. And quite frankly, a, uh, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals seems to be agreeing with me. They have temporarily stayed, uh, put a hold on the vaccine mandate. Listen to this from their, uh, their opinion here. All else equal, a 28-year-old trucker spending the bulk of his workday in the solitude of his cab is simply less vulnerable to COVID-19 than a 62-year-old prison janitor. Therefore, why should you give it to everybody? Mandate that it be given to everybody. And the end, at the end of this, they said it is further ordered that OSHA take no steps to implement or enforce the mandate until further court order. That came out just on Friday, barely noticed uh, by the mainstream media. I wonder why. Congressman Byron Donalds joins us, Republican of Florida. Sir, welcome back to Newsmax. How are you? It's good to be back with you. Uh, listen, I was I went through this 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 ruling, this uh, opinion, this stay, and I was so encouraged that there are employees of the federal government like you, like them, where common sense still rules. What, what's your reaction to this? Uh, first of all, I want to thank the Fifth Cir Circuit for putting out a ruling that actually just makes sense. Uh, they are right. If somebody is a trucker, they're not really susceptible to COVID-19 at all versus somebody who might be a janitor in a heavily, you know, uh, heavily filled building. And so this is the reality. But to a broader point, the federal government has no ability to tell you you must stick something in your arm across the entire United States. We simply don't need to do that. Joe Biden is just being reckless with policy. He's being reckless uh, with the exec his executive orders because he has failed on every other point of his presidency. He's trying to win somewhere, but in his lashing out, what he's doing is being a dictator. He's being a totalitarian. He's being unconstitutional. And the Fifth Circuit basically told him to stand down. They told OSHA to stand down. It was the exact right move. You know, it was his manner also. The way he told us this vaccine mandate was happening under OSHA last September, and I think, quite frankly, the justices noticed his tone as well. But first, here's uh, Joe Biden back in September. What more do you need to see? We've made vaccinations free, safe, and convenient. The vaccine is FDA approval. Over two 100 million Americans have gotten at least one shot. We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin. 
Patience is wearing thin, and I go to the Fifth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals, what they wrote about that. There is no clear expression of congressional intent to convey OSHA such broad authority, and this court will not infer one, nor can the Article II executive breathe new power into OSHA's authority, no matter how thin patience wears. Now, the Article II executive they're talking about is Joe Biden, and he just does not have the authority, and I love that. I think they're talking about the same guy we're talking about, right? Uh, they absolutely are. Listen, no president has the authority to just create legislative power out of thin air. They don't have it no matter what they think. Quick message to Joe Biden. Nobody cares about your patients wearing thin. What the American people care about is the fact that they can't get their packages on time. How about worry about our patients instead of yours? But going back to the, the fact of the matter, Congress never gave OSHA such authority. Never. To try to create it just because you or your patience is wearing thin and you want to claim victory over COVID-19 is irrelevant. He doesn't have the power. When he made that statement, I said he didn't have the power. The Fifth Circuit has said he doesn't have the power. This thing is going to take some time to work its way through the courts. I believe the Supreme Court is going to say that he doesn't have the power and that this mandate is null, it's void, and it is unconstitutional. Uh, and it was just a breath of fresh air also from the from the Fifth Circuit. Hey, one other thing that I liked here, Joe Biden, who has never run a business, he's never uh, you know met a payroll. He raises money from others and does favors. But when he said this last September about the impact uh, the mandate will have on the economy, something else I just knew he didn't know what he was talking about. This is good for the workers, for their colleagues, for their loved ones and for their communities. It's also good for the economy. The, the, the judges seem to know more about economics and costs than Joe Biden. Uh, they, they, they said that this is not the case. It's so onerous on businesses. And what about small businesses, by the way, where there's no vaccine mandate? Everything about what he did didn't make sense. So I'm very, very happy about it. Final thoughts on this. And then I got to ask you about uh, Kamala Harris, if you don't mind. Well, a couple of quick things. You said it best. Joe Biden's never had a job, let alone has actually had to run an organization or manage a department. So he is incompetent and illiterate when it comes to the economy. He's ignorant of the facts. This mandate will be bad for employees. It will be even worse for employers because no business can run if you have to fire 10 to 15 percent of your workforce. Anybody that's run a business would know that. But Joe Biden's never run anything in his life, and now he's president. So that's a statement that was given to him by political staffers who also have not worked in the real world. That's how ridiculous a statement that is. Um, Kamala Harris, vice president of the United mm -hmm. States. Uh, it doesn't seem to be working out too well. Uh, no one likes her. The American people, her approval rating is at about 27, 28 percent. And uh, there's real friction, almost open warfare between Joe Biden's staff and her. Uh, how do you think this is going to play out? It doesn't sound like it can last four years. Well, first of all, let's just say this once and for all. Uh, this happens in politics. It happens in sports. When you're on a team that is losing, where you can't just seem to get a win anywhere because you simply don't know what you're doing, these things happen. You're going to have fraying amongst teammates and all this kind of stuff. What's worse here is that Kamala Harris is not good at her job, and everybody knows it, including the White House, and they're not good at their job. <laughs> and the problem is the American people recognize it. We're all sitting in the stands. We're watching them play the game, and they absolutely suck. They're not good at this, and so this is the response that you get. They absolutely do suck.
<laughs> Congressman Donalds, I appreciate it so much. Uh, please come back soon and uh, continued success. Representative Byron Donalds, Republican of Florida. Thank you, sir. We'll be right back. A liberty-loving American takes on Washington, Hollywood, and the whole media establishment. He's Chris Salcedo. Join his fight. Tune in to The Chris Salcedo Show every weekday afternoon on Newsmax. Hope is alive and well. I'll see you tomorrow. And stand by for Cinchfield.